We will tonight turn for an answer as to what Christmas is about to the book of Psalms, which of course is somewhat unusual because it's the Old Testament. But then, we are a psalm-singing church, and the church will always remain so. Now, I'm not redoing, if I wanted to, which I don't, the debate at the General Assembly, but I think it is clear that the psalms should be always a treasured, loved, and valued part of our heritage. And that is right, because it is part of God's word, to give guidance and instruction. And it is also a great treasure trove of crystallized human emotions that they have uttered in Hebrew poets about their experiences of life with and sometimes without God. They reflect the experiences of other believers for us to identify with, to learn from, and to be encouraged by. Because we find that they are so very much like us and we like them. And then, of course, often we have our favorite verses. But not always are we very aware of the context within the psalm or of the psalm within the context of the Bible. And we sing them and we are emotionally supported by it, and there is nothing wrong with that at all, but sometimes without so much understanding. But you see, whether you are a psalm-only opinion person or you are in favor of hymns as well, it is imperative and it is also rewarding to know and appreciate the psalms in their biblical context. And we will this evening briefly reflect upon Psalm 40. That, of course, in the old version, is the psalm of the miry clay. I'm sure there are generations of children learning this psalm without having any idea at all what that was all about, the miry clay. And the psalm is also, in the end, a quest for Christmas. The singing of the psalm is often limited to the verses 1 to 5, and then the verses 6 to 8 are often referred to as messianic prophecy because of the quotation in the letter to the Hebrews that we read. And then the rest of the psalm is often ignored. Only the real experts know that the verses 13 to 17 are virtually the same as Psalm 70. And how many of us have asked the question, why this psalm swings from optimism after delivery, and he inclined to me and heard my cry, and he has put a new song in my mouth, and then the praise for the delivery, I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly, then in the last half to a prayer or a lament for delivery. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Surely that's an odd sequence. So how does this psalm hang together? Is it one psalm or is it cobbled together? Some commentators say it's really two psalms, and they give you some explanation and exposition on the first half, and then they say, well, for Psalm 40b, you need to go and look at our comment under Psalm 70. So what did David mean? Or if not him, what did the composer or the compiler mean? 
and who, when, and where was he? We will try to briefly look at the entire psalm, understanding it as one psalm of it. A psalm for himself and for us about the need of deliverance, or in the seasonal terms, a quest for Christmas. The need for deliverance through the salvation coming through the Lord Jesus. And we will look at this need for deliverance under three headings. The first one is delivered and delighted in the verses 1-5. And then delivered and dedicated, the verses 6-10. to And then in the verses 11-17, to devastated and yet delivered. So a psalm of David about the need for deliverance. And that is in the first place then delivered and delighted. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry. Maybe you are a patient person. I don't know. Then you can probably easily relate to this particular translation, I waited patiently. I am not with much patience, and I'm very happy to sing the sing-psalm version of the psalm, which I think is a better translation. I waited long, because patiently is too placid. The text tells us it is waited and waited and waited and waited, and all the time crying out. Well, we do not know what the specific difficulties were that David referred to. Maybe this psalm came together, the place in the uh, book of Psalms suggests such a thing, that after years and years and years of exile and being persecuted by Saul, who tried to kill him for no reason but jealousy. We do not often emphasize that phase in his life, but imagine, you know, the whole apparatus of the state is, is, is out to kill you while you are innocent. You are in deep trouble for sure. Or maybe it refers to his misstep with Bathsheba and the consequences thereof in the form of family trouble which continued to haunt him all his life. And then the language of the psalm remains more colorful, I think, and more forceful than maybe the translation suggests. The Lord is not so much inclined, as some of the translations have it, benevolently leaning forward to look down, or turned, as our translation has it, But it says he reached out. So the long and the difficult wait, the text tells us, is finally rewarded. Finally, the Lord did what David could not do himself. And we sometimes, in our troubles, cannot do ourselves. He pulls him out of the horrible pit. Maybe what he is describing is something like a well that the prophet Jeremiah was thrown into. A well or a pit with no way out and only a swamp and a lot of mud at the bottom in which one can only sink deeper with every attempt to get out. And the the psalm then tells us that the Lord puts him on a rock. It's a rock like a cliff. So from depth to height, from swamp to firm ground, finally he has solid ground under his feet. 
Now, we don't know what in the practical reality of life that deliverance was. Maybe it was the end of Saul's persecution, maybe something else. But the psalm tells us the Lord reached out. And you can, through his words in this psalm, feel his relief and his joy. And the response to that delivery is a song of praise. Either the following verses 4 and 5. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false God. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders you have done. Or more likely, maybe he's looking at the whole psalm. And the interesting thing we are told here is, is that the song is not his work. It says, he, that is God, put a new song in my mouth. Even the ability of thanksgiving is a gift. And that is such a human experience, isn't it? Because for us, the ability to be happy and to be grateful and to give thanks is so often difficult to achieve. And we may well remain miserable, miserable a long time after we have had some problems and remain down and sour and sore. But also then, there is with his gift of thankfulness, giving us the ability to sing and praise. And then our text says, and many will see it and fear. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The Hebrew here is a wordplay. See and fear, Yeru and Yeruah. Now, fear can have many meanings. If you look it up in the dictionary, it probably says something like it can be the emotion of fear. It can also be the intellectual anticipation of evil without any kind of emphasis on an emotional reaction. I fear that this boy is going to end badly. It can also mean reverence or awe, or righteous behavior or piety, or it can look at formal religious worship. Here it is followed by the expression trust in the Lord, so it probably means reverence or righteous behavior. The people all around it will see it and revere God, and in him alone they will trust. For it is he alone who can deliver from trouble. And then we hear his delight in this song. Blessed are they, blessed are they who trust the Lord, not in anything else, not in people, not in schemes, not in devices to get you out of trouble. In the first half of verse 5, the emphasis is achieved, I guess, in a way by grammatical redundancy. Literally, it says, Many are your, that is the Lord's, wonders you did. And says the psalm then in the second half of that verse, they were works you planned for us. Literally things you fought for us. It's not just by accident that things happen in our life. And it's not sort of in passing that the Lord delivers but it is part of his all-encompassing plan, the thoughts he fought. His deliverance was not because of a lucky coincidence he happened to hear us, but it is part of his covenant faithfulness. They are part of a long-term commitment to us. And all his works for us are countless, the psalmist then tells us. We would not know where to start recounting them. So we heard in these five verses a psalm of deliverance, delivered 
and delighted. Now before we move on, let's sing these five verses and reflect on them as we sing. I waited long upon the Lord. He heard my cry and turned to me. He raised me from the slimy pit and from the mire he pulled me free. Down the last stanza we will sing the wonders you have done, O Lord. How many and how great they are. Your plans for us are far beyond our power to number or declare. I waited long upon the Lord. He heard my cry and turned to me. He raised me from the A psalm of deliverance, delivered and delighted. Then there is in the second place a psalm of deliverance, delivered and dedicated. In Psalm five of the, uh, or in verse five of the psalm, it gradually moves from a declaration to listeners about David's experience with God to a direct address to God. Verse 5, if you look at it, it's materially about God. Formally, it's addressed to God. And then now in verse 6, David continues to speak to God. It is in a way after his deliverance, his direct reaction, his response to God. And the verses are, of course, well known through the letter to the Hebrews. We read that section. There is in this verse 6 this somewhat strange expression, which is translated also in different ways. Ears you have dug for me, or translation, ears you have pierced for me. Both, I think, are possible in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language. And it's either a reference to Exodus 21, 
which describes that is a slave who is about to set free prefers to remain working for his boss because his boss is a good one, his master, then he can make that declaration and has, as a signal of it, as a sign of it, his ear pierced. And in a way, I guess, it indicates that from there on out there will be voluntary, voluntarily obedience. It can also be, in the other translation, a sort of a vivid Hebrew way of saying what Isaiah later describes in chapter 50, verse 4. He, God, forms my ears so I can listen like one being taught. I guess it doesn't really matter which translation you select. In both cases, the point is, in essence, the same. God made me obedient, gave me obedience. And what verse 6 says is not the rejection of the sacrificial cult, is what some commentators say, but David, as the composer of the psalm, is highly unlikely to have taken that view. In fact, he was the organizer of the Israelite cult. You can read that chapters long in Chronicles 23 to 26. But the point is, it is not the ritual offering, any offering, and not the routine of the sacrifices that satisfies God. Because unlike the idols, God cannot be bought by gifts or gestures. He wants us. He wants our hearts. Us being dedicated to him. You see, going to church and keeping the Sabbath and doing gift aid, they're all important and necessary. But if it's just the routine, the comfortable tradition, then... And the expression, is that blunt in the psalm? The Lord doesn't want it. It's a warning that the prophets later often repeat. If Israel's heart is not for the Lord, and in their daily life they do not obey him, then their sacrifices only stink. If David indeed did write this psalm after his persecution by Saul... The reference is, I think, particularly apt if you remember what Samuel said to Saul in chapter 15. Samuel 15 reports, it gives us the story of the tragic rejection of Saul by the Lord, followed by David's anointment. In verse 22 we read, Then Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed his word is better than the fat of rams. You see, that was Saul's problem. He went through the motions of sacrifice, and he didn't mean it, because he did at the end not trust and obey the Lord. And this is reiterated in verse 7. It's not Saul's example of only outward sacrificial service that the psalmist will follow but obey the instruction for Israel's king, as we read it in Deuteronomy 17. Because the obedient king, according to Moses, would not be relying on power, on horses, on alliances, marriages with other monarchies, or on economic wealth, gold, but he would rely on the Lord. Having the law at his side and reading leading his people, not as a warrior, not as a diplomat, and not through wealth, but through his example of obedience and of trusting, verse 4, above, in God. And the king of Deuteronomy 17 is called the exemplar king, 
And the core of the psalm is here in verse 7. I come. Not as in I happened to pass by, or I came by and I looked in, but as in I come to serve and obey you. I follow you. It is the self-giving. It is the deliverance followed by the dedication. And then there is the interjection, it is written about me in the scroll. That writing of Deuteronomy 17 in the scroll, he acknowledges as written about him. Not about David uniquely and personally, but about him as an obedient Israelite king. Deuteronomy 17 gave us the type of the king God wanted for his people. Now, of course, none of them succeeded in being such a king apart from one. But David does profess here his dedication. Words I want, I desire is, I think, a bit too weak or too iffy or too much like wishful thinking. The text says, I delight. I delight in doing your will. That is my heart's desire. Being obedient to God is actually a delightful experience for him. As it is for all of us, if we follow the Lord wholeheartedly. And he gave his heart. Verse 8b, it was not just an exterior ritual. He says, in my hearts, in my guts, in my inner being. And then in the verses 9 to 10, we see him act as a true king of Israel. He leads his people in his obedience. As Israel's king, he had to lead in obedience, and so he proclaims in the assembly. It's a general word, sort of a meeting where things were discussed. It could be the church or otherwise. I guess in the Old Testament, it doesn't really matter all that much. Joy and delight in obedience leads to witness. That is where he was in verse 3. He, God, has put the new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear. And here he is pointing towards God. All should see and revere. Again, the same pair of words. Yeru, Yerau. And the language in verse 9b is very forceful. Behold, I cannot shut up. God, you know it. His religion is not a private affair to be kept within the confines of his private life. He went to that assembly and he opened his mouth and he professed his faith. And then in verse 10 he tells his people about God, all in the language of the covenant. His faithfulness, God's faithfulness, God never letting you down. His salvation, the word Joshua, Jesus, always delivering. His love that never lets you go and his truthfulness that is never misleading. God, he tells them and he tells us, is always true to himself and to his covenant and to his promise and he will always deliver. And so... I delight in my dedication to him, and all the assembly is to do the same. That is what he tells us in the second part of this psalm, delivered and dedicated. So before we move to the third and last section, let us sing this section, the verses 6 to 10. You did not ask that calves or goats be brought as sacrifice for sins, but you have opened up my ears this person is going for the other translation, you did not seek burnt offering. 
Down to verse 10, I did not hide within my heart your saving grace and righteousness. In the assembly I proclaimed your steadfast love and faithfulness. You did not ask that calves or goats be brought as sacrifice for sin, but you have opened up my ears. You did not seek burnt offering. Then I declare it, what I have come, it's written of me in the scroll. I want to do your will, my God, your second section, a psalm of deliverance delivered and dedicated. And then there is also the last section of the psalm, devastated and yet delivered. Because as you will read the text, you will see that there is a sudden change. It all seemed well. But now there is a prayer, and it is an urgent one. The text starts with, you, Lord, do not withhold your mercy. But in the previous verse, he was speaking out and he was witnessing about God's faithfulness, the love that never lets us go. And now he's asking for it, and he's using in Hebrew the same word. So what's going on? Well, the psalm is a song from real life. And that is how it sometimes is. Happiness and certainty prevail one moment, and trouble and uncertainty engulf us the next. And so it is here with David in verse 12. Are the consequences of old sins catching up with him, or does he anticipate new trouble? Well, the practicalities we don't know. But I guess the pattern we recognize. And now the psalmist tells us evils without end surround him, and countless were God's works and wonders before, and now without number are his troubles. And he cannot see. There is no perspective, no horizon. He loses heart. He sees no way out. And I cannot see. It's the same word as he used in verse 3, Yeru. That is the greatest of all threats. You remember Yeru, Yerau. He may lose his confidence and his trust in God. 
And it is not just general trouble or an outside evil that is the problem. Because the text tells us it is his sins that have overtaken him. His own sins, they've gotten hold of him, they have entangled him. David, through some kind of event or through reflection, we don't know, realized that he is not. And he will never be free from sin and disobedience. But then in the previous section we heard that without obedience, his sacrifices don't make any sense. That was the lesson of Saul's life. So his intentions were fine, and his delight in doing God's will was sincere. But he knows that he can by himself not persevere. And keeping up the earlier trust and the obedience, it turns out to be difficult, too difficult. And his self-giving is imperfect. And so what the psalmist tells us is that the final solution is still outstanding. And the quest for the definitive resolution is still on. And again, his prayer, it continues to be urgent in verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to save me, O Lord, come quickly to help me. There are two imperatives in this prayer, because it is imperative that God save him. There is no alternative. To save me or to rescue me, it's a very strong expression. It's like, snatch me, like you can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. For, verse 14 tells us, there are, of course, always the negative influences. The jeering people who are rubbing it in. Yes, yes, see, see. Very keen to give the falling and stumbling believer the last shove. And here in David's case, they appear to be people, but they can also be circumstances. And then he prays in verse 15 that the Lord may keep them back and may keep them at bay. And in verse 16, then David speaks not just for himself. He says, but let all. He knows that this is not only true for him, but it's true for all. He again is acting in his capacity of leader, of exemplar king, who knows that the final solution is still outstanding for all. All who seek you. The verb to seek that is used here means looking for something with the objective of actually finding and acquiring it. Because seeking is not the purpose in itself. Some people want to be seekers forever. But the intensity of this prayer and the seriousness of the matter does not allow for seeking just to be a seeker. Because action needs to follow. Let them be joyful. Let them praise. The word used for seeking here is the same verb as is used by Moses in his speech to Israel where he commands them to obey the Lord. Deuteronomy 4 verse 29 where we read, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him, if you seek him, with all your heart and with all your soul. The word seeking is nearly identical with obedience. No longer following the idols. That was, of course, Israel's fate after the exile. You see, the true seekers are not the doubters, are not the ones that are always sitting on the fence, that are never sure and never committed. The obedient worshippers, 
They are the ones who seek God. And his text here is both a prayer to God and an exhortation to the people. Now, how can it be both? Well, God gave the song in his mouth, we heard at the beginning of the psalm. And he works both the will and the work. David and our obedience is imperfect. But he and we need to proceed to praise. That is what he did in the beginning of the psalm. And that is his exhortation here. Let those who love your salvation, who really want to be saved, let them say, exalted is the Lord. The translation may is, I think, too weak. It's an instruction. Let them say. And then in the last verse, he speaks again in the first person. But I think we can assume here that he is acting as the representative of the people and of ourselves. And being poor here is not like, you know, I have no money, but it's being oppressed and afflicted by sin, which is weighing down on me. Needy in need of protection against sin and its consequences. The psalmist here in this text creates two opposites, and it's emphasized by the word sequence. But I, but my Lord. I am poor and needy, but my Lord will think of me. The word think here is the same as in verse 5. God is thinking thoughts for us. He is having his plans ready. It is not like thinking about and remembering, oh, yeah, oh, this man is still waiting outside. No, it is thinking, devising, coming up with a solution. Yes, I am oppressed and in need of protection against sin and its consequences. But my Lord will come up with a solution for me. It's a confession, it's a prayer, and it is a statement of his confidence, his trust, and his faith. You are my help and my deliverer, no doubt. It reminds us, the psalm here at the end of Revelations, yes, Lord, come quickly. So for David, although he had confidence in God and trusted in him, This psalm is like one of these music pieces where the composer died before completing it. It's sort of an unfullendete, a piece unfinished. Could be the title of the psalm. Because worshiping God, sacrifices, church-going, gift aid, it's only any good if it is combined with obedience. But that obedience was and is imperfect. And so the final solution was at David's time, left outstanding. And the quest for Christmas was still on. And the prayer therefore ends with, Lord, come quickly. Now, David may not have known how and when that would happen. But the writer of the Hebrews, as we read, did. And that is why he can put these words in the mouth of the Lord Jesus. As inspired scripture, they were his words anyway. Because the Lord came as the perfect exemplar king. And his obedience was complete. And therefore his sacrifice could be the last once and for all. As the letter to the Hebrews tells us many times. And that is what we have been celebrating the last few days with Christmas. Because deliverance has come. 
and the road to God is open. We can worship him. Our obedience will not be perfect, and troubles may at time overwhelm us, but it is fine in him. Because at Christmas he came to bring the final solution, and so we can come. Amen. Let us again reflect on what we heard by singing the words of Psalm 40, the verses 11 to 17. Do not withhold your mercy, Lord. Surround your servant constantly with your great love and faithfulness, for many troubles threaten me. But let all those who seek your face be joyful in you all their days. Let those who love salvation say, Exalted be the Lord always. David could say this in confidence looking forward, not knowing the facts, but we do. And so we can sing with him, yet I am poor and in great need. Lord, think on me, I humbly pray. You are my Savior and my help. Oh, come, my God, do not delay. Do not withhold your mercy, Lord. Surround yourself and Hey.
and in great need. 